1 Kings chapter number 10 tonight. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. Word of God says, And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train, with camels that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her questions. There was not anything hid from the king which he told her not. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built and the meat of his table and the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel and his cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up unto the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not the words until I came and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighted in thee, to set thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. And she gave the king an hundred and twenty talents of gold and of spices very great store and precious stones. There came no more such abundance of spices as these, which the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And the navy also of Hiram that brought gold from Ophir, brought in from Ophir great plenty of almig trees and precious stones. And the king made of the almig trees pillars for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, harps also and psalteries for singers. There came no such almig trees, nor were seen unto this day. And King Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all her desire, whatsoever she asked, beside that which Solomon gave her of his royal bounty. So she turned and went to her own country, she and all her servants. Let's go back and read verse 6 and 7. Again, the Word of God says, And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not the words until I came and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank You for this time. We thank You for the privilege it is to gather in Your house. God, we'd ask that each and every heart, mine own first and foremost, would be open and tender to the preaching of Your Word and to the wooing of Your Spirit. Lord God, we ask that You'd conquer battles, that You'd win victories in our hearts tonight. Lord, above all, that when we leave here, You'd have more of us than You had when we walked in the door. Lord, we love You tonight, and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, in 1 Kings chapter number 10, we have the meeting of two heads of state, as it were. This is during a period of time that most theologians will call the golden era of the nation of Israel. Solomon is upon the throne and several chapters are used just to describe the riches and splendor and wealth that belong to him. As you study the Word of God and as you study typology, and I I think one of the most valuable and fruitful things you can study in the Bible is typology. Uh, Christ said this, that lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. He said that you read Moses and you say you believe Moses, but if you believe Moses, you'd believe in me, because he wrote of me. He said, search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. 
And so as you go through the Word of God, in the Old Testament, you'll find pictures and shadows and glimpses. And sometimes it's explicit, and sometimes it's plain. Sometimes it almost cannot be avoided. When we think of Isaac being sacrificed upon Mount Moriah, what a vivid picture of the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, But sometimes it's sort of like the uh, little Shulamite girl saw him in the book of Song of Solomon. She saw him through the lattice work. And sometimes it takes a few moments and it takes a little thinking. But sure as anything, Harold Sotler used to say that every page in the Bible tells us about Jesus. And he said that if you read a page and don't find Him, he said, flip the page, you'll find Him twice. And so He's on every page of the Word of God. David is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The Davidic covenant that was made, the promises made to David are fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were fulfilled in a partial sense uh, when He hung on the cross as King of Kings. But there's coming a day when He'll sit on a throne as King of Kings. And that promise and covenant will be fulfilled in entirety. But Solomon pictures for us the Lord Jesus Christ in the splendor of His millennial reign. When He will sit upon that throne, when all nations will come unto Him, when riches will be brought... Uh, like rivers flowing into Jerusalem. You say, you believe that preacher? Well, I believe my Bible. If I believe my Bible, I've got to believe that. But as we read this passage, the thing that strikes me is that in Solomon we see a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is not unusual. But in the Queen of Sheba, I think we have a picture of the inquiring sinner wanting to find something out about who Jesus Christ is. You know, I know we're told that this world is gospel-saturated, but there's still people that want to hear about Jesus. There's still people looking for answers. There's still people that want to know. uh, If that was not so, Christians would not remain under such constant scrutiny. If they didn't want to know, they wouldn't care how you live. But you want to find out if they care how you live, just wait till you mess up and you'll find out they care a lot. And so the world is looking and watching and seeing. You say, but preacher, we have preached to them. We have given the gospel to them. I did not say they were listening. I said they're looking. Now, let me be very explicit with what I'm about to say because somebody always want to drag you in one ditch or in the other. But I believe there is a place for confrontational, personal, aggressive soul winning. And if that makes me a fanatic or a militant or a nut, whatever, that's the way that folks are one to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're saved because somebody gave you the gospel. You're not just saved because somebody did a good deed in front of you. You're not just saved because someone went to church in front of you. You're saved because somebody gave you the gospel. But by the same token, I see that there is a purpose and there is a value in the life that we live in the eyes of those that are around us. And it certainly preaches a message that though it may not be louder than the message of the gospel, in some ways it arrests their attention in a deeper way. You see, the Queen of Sheba, she had heard all of these things. But she said, none of that mattered to me till I saw it with my very own eyes. And when she came and saw it, a change was made in who she was. You know, to this day in that part of the world that she came from, there has always been a gospel witness. Uh, uniquely so, as you look in Ethiopia and in those places in, in Egypt or Africa or however you want to describe it, there's always been an unusual presence of truth and of a gospel witness there. You say, where did that come from, preacher? Well, I think it came from a lot of places. I think it could have come from a lot of places. But I've got a pretty good idea that when the Queen of Sheba returned home, she wanted to tell some folks about some things that she had seen. Nobody in the Word of God ever got saved and kept quiet about it. 
Nobody. Find me one person in the Bible who got saved and then kept quiet about it. They always told folks what happened to them. And so I want us to look for a few moments tonight at some things that she looked at. And some of the things are going to teach us about the Word of God. Some of them are going to teach us about the way we need to live, and some of them are going to teach us about what happens to a lost sinner when they see these truths. Well, the first thing that she does as she approaches King Solomon, she does not come in and say, I want to see all the wealth that you have. She doesn't come in and say, I want to see the house of the Lord. She doesn't come in and say, I, I want to see the cedar pillars. I want to see the gold overlayment. She didn't come in and say that I want to see the uh, sea of brass that is laid out there at the temple. She didn't want to see any of those treasures. But the first thing that she wanted to do when she came into the presence of Solomon was sit down in front of him and hear the wisdom that he had to give. If you go a few chapters back, and you know, there's a lot of things that we read in our Bible, but, but we don't really soak in. And you know, the Bible says this about Solomon, that he had more wisdom on things like the fish in the sea, the animals that were in the forest, about geography, about science. About... We'll never fathom the brilliance and wisdom that Solomon contained. I mean, when you look merely at the, the mass of wealth that he gained to himself, you can tell this was a man that had the wisdom of God within him. And so as you begin to examine his life, the queen of Sheba looked at him and said, all these things are merely an outpouring of the truth that drives his life, the purpose of who he is, the wisdom that is contained within his mind and within his heart. And she said, before I want to do anything else, I want to sit at his feet, I want to hear the words that he says, I want to learn the wisdom that he has. You see, the wisdom was the preeminent thing. And you say, preacher, what does that mean to me? Well, it gives us some encouragement, and here's why. Because Solomon's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ, He is not present with us bodily. You understand that, right? But uh, the Bible says that He'd never leave us nor forsake us. And one of the ways that He is with us is this. He is the living Word, and we have the written Word. The written Word of God is synonymous in nature with the living Word of God. This will straighten out a lot of bad theology if you'll just stick with me for a moment. You see, if Jesus is perfect, then I'm to believe that my Bible's perfect. That just doesn't make a lot of sense. Jesus, you say, but preacher, the Bible has been polluted by the hands of man. Well, Jesus became the sins of all humanity, past and present and future. And when He came out of it, when He raised from the dead, His righteousness was not marred. All the hands that men want to place on the Word of God, they can place. But you see, it's settled forever in heaven. And they can't do anything against it. They can try to pervert it. They can try to pollute it. There'll be Christians that go out and buy copies of it. Uh, There'll be universities that go out and stock their libraries with it. There'll be quote-unquote self-named theologians that tout the accuracy of these perversions and so on and so forth. But it will not change that the Word of God is perfect, inspired, and preserved for you and I. It's not going to change that. And you see, that's the preeminent thing. I believe in testimonial soul winning. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, telling people what the Lord did for you. I believe in that. I believe that's scriptural. I mean, uh, there are times when somebody is holding the Word of God and they have questions like the Ethiopian eunuch. and He looked at Philip and said, Speaketh this, uh, uh, this man of, of himself or of another. And that's wonderful when you can do that. But you know how Paul usually did it? He'd be in a mess. He'd be in trouble. There ain't no telling what we could do with all the trouble we get into, Right? And he'd lift up his hand and he'd say, Men and brethren, I was on the road to Damascus when a light shined from heaven. You see, he talked about what happened in his life. But understand this true, that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You see, your testimony is a wonderful thing, but it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that saves a man. That and that alone can save an individual. 
You can tell them a lot of different things, but the greatest thing you can tell them is the Word of God. You see, before she wanted to see anything else, she wanted to hear the words that he had to speak. She wanted to hear the wisdom that poured forth of him. Or could I just put it this way? She wanted to hear the wisdom of that Solomon. In this day that we live in, lost folks need to hear the wisdom of that Solomon. Amen? And she comes to him, and there's three things that she mentions. Notice, first off, she mentions its declaration. Look at verse number 1. It says, And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning what? The name of the Lord. She came to prove him with hard questions. All the way back in her kingdom, the wisdom of Solomon, of the name of the Lord, had permeated and penetrated the palaces that she had dwelt in. Let me tell you something. We let people play us for a fool. We really do. I'm serious. We let people play us for a fool. Let me tell you something. A lost sinner, they know that we believe this is the Word of God. They may reject that it's the Word of God, but make no mistake, the average lost individual that walks in off the street or that you bump into... That most of them in this part of the world, most of them have heard the name of Jesus. Most of them know that the Bible is supposed to be the Word of God. Oh, they'll tell you, well, I heard it was written by men. Well, if it was written by men, how come it's still around? You name me something else that is as prevalent and as populous as the Word of God is today. The very fact that the Word of God is in existence is proof that it's the Word of God. Sixty-six books written by almost as many authors or penmen, if you want to use that terminology, coupled together in flawless and seamless harmony, completely and utterly agreeing, if we'll rightly divide, the word of truth. Only God could do that. Only God could do that. Man could not do that. Let me tell you something. People say sometimes, uh, you know, I see people writing their Bibles. That's fine. I'm not going to fuss at you. If you want to write in your Bible, that's wonderful. I always have good intentions of writing in my Bible. I've bought Bibles, not beautiful leather, I mean like calfskin bound, beautiful leather Bibles with with places uh, expressly for writing in. And I go out and I buy Bible pens and things like that. And I don't write in pretty much any of my Bibles. Do you know why that is? It's not because I believe it's wrong. It's not because I believe it's disrespectful. It's because I don't trust my own theology. Amen? I don't want to be looking at it a year down the road going, man, what was I thinking? I ruined a good Bible with that nonsense. And I never bring myself to it. And yet the continuity and purity of the Word of God is unparalleled by all the various penmen over thousands of years, and yet still here we have it, and still it holds up to scrutiny, and still man can't do anything to stomp it out or to burn it out or to mark it out. Still it exists. And that's not lost on the lost man. He knows that. He understands that. She mentions its declaration. Look at the next phrase. She mentions its debt. She came to to him, why? To prove him with hard questions. Notice what it says. It goes on, verse number 2. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train, with camels that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. She said, I've got some difficult questions that I want to ask you. I've got some things that I want you to answer And you know what Solomon's wisdom did? And you know what the Word of God's wisdom does to this day? It answers them. It answers them. It's funny. People have been talking about contradictions in the King James Bible for 400 years, but they have yet to show me one. There are difficulties in the King James Bible. I'll acknowledge that. There's difficulties in the the book that you program your computer with. But there's no contradictions in the Word of God. 
You find me one. If there was one to be found, they would have plastered it on billboards. They would have painted it upon the side of buildings. They would have included it in the godless secular state curriculum. They would have done everything they could to try to spread it around. But still, there's debates and arguments and squabbles and fussing and fighting as they try to point out paper tigers and as they try to point out winding trails that lead nowhere to prove to us that our Bible's false. We see the depth of it. It answers every question. The Bible is not a history book, but its history is 100% accurate. The Bible is not a science book, but it's scientifically ahead and always has been scientifically ahead of mankind. The Bible is not a philosophy book, but its logic is impeccable when understood within the framework of a divine mindset. This Bible is absolutely everything that we need. You say, preacher, are you saying we ought to throw other books away? No, I'm not saying we ought to throw... You might ought to throw other Bibles away, amen? But but I'm not saying you ought to throw all other books away. I'm not implying that because I've I've been going through... You know, we moved into this house and I got all these books and they're in all these boxes. And they don't do a lot of good when they're in boxes. Somebody say amen. They're just heavy and take up space and I can't park my car because of them. And so... I've been going through and I've been laying them out. But as you lay out all those books, you know, I found this, that for six months, for eight months, I've been able to live without them. But every time I climb into the pulpit, this book has to be with me. I've got to have this. I can do without every other one. I'm not saying you should have to do without I'm not saying you should throw them away. I'm not speaking against them. I'm just merely saying this, that every answer for every question you could ever ask is answered in this King James Bible, either in particular or in principle. We see the depth of it. But then notice the defense of it. Look at verse number 3. And Solomon told her all questions. There was not anything hid from the king which he told her not. Now let me be very explicit with what I say here. I'm not opposed to defending the King James Bible. I'm just saying you don't have to. It defends itself. Solomon didn't have to call for the magicians and for the wise men. He was the wise man. Oh my. (laughs) I really want you to get that. Solomon didn't have to call for the magicians and wise men. He was the wise man. Let me tell you something. I don't need some theologian with so many degrees. You know, a thermometer has 32 degrees and is still frozen with a bunch of degrees to tell me my Bible is true. I just don't need that. I don't need someone to take me through a 100,000 dusty extant manuscripts and compare them and lay them. I know it could be done. I'm aware of that. I'm not saying it couldn't be done. I'm saying it don't have to be done. The very power and majesty of this book that I hold in my hand is enough to tell me it's the very Word of God. And it defends itself. Defends itself. It's amazing to me. You never find any NIV-only people. You never find any NKJV only. I've never met a single person that said, Now listen, and I'll die for this truth. I believe the New King James Version is the Word of God and every other one's trash. I've never heard a single person say that. Not a single person. I've never heard anyone say, I am a revised standard version only person and I'll separate with you over that. I've never heard anyone say that. You know why? Because their theology is a theology from a manward approach. You know what the source and fountain of our theology ought to be is the very Word of God. We ought not seek for the Word of God to be shoehorned into our theological framework and thinking. That's false. That's error. That'll lead you to heresy. But if you'll start at a place of saying this, the author of the book knows what the book means. And if I can get his mind on it, I believe it'll be perfect. I believe it'll be right. 
And you'll find this Bible defends itself. Defends itself. Tyrants have tried to the best of their ability to stamp out the Word. It's still here. Still here. And it's not because I wrote a book or because you wrote a book or because somebody else wrote a book. It's because it's the Word of God and it defends itself. It defends itself. So she comes, she wants to know the wisdom of the Word. That's the first thing. But then she moves on. Notice this. Not only does she want to see the wisdom of the king, but she wants to see the wealth of the king. Oh, she had heard about it. I mean, listen, I, I can't, I, and I wish, I wish I did. I got a terrible memory. I, I mean, you, you might tell me your name, like, you know, right now, and I'll forget it, like, right now. That's how my memory is. I just have a terrible memory. It's no offense. I'm not saying you're not memorable or worth knowing. It's just, I, I mean, stuff goes in, it goes out. I don't think there's anything in here. And so there's nothing that stops it, you know. Some of you said, amen. I heard that. I heard that. I wish I could remember all the things the Bible does say about the wealth of Solomon. I know the Bible says there was never a wealth accumulated the way the wealth of Solomon was. I I know that the the splendor, the Bible says this, is he made hundreds of shields of gold. The Bible says that each one had three pounds of gold in it. Let me tell you something. Some of you, you've been listening to them talk radios, and they've been trying to get you to buy gold and stuff. Man, what if you get a hold of one of them shields, amen? That would keep the economy afloat, right? The Bible says that Solomon made silver to be as stones in Israel. That's how much silver he had. I mean, silver was nothing. It was just as what you paid things with. You say, man, it don't get better than that. It it, it does. (laughs) It does because the other Solomon is building a city where the streets are made of gold and the foundations are laid of precious stones. You see, the truth of it is this. Solomon's wealth was so vast... The Bible says there were certain portions of it that he quit counting. He just quit counting it. There was no purpose in it. It's hard to fathom that. But we believe it's true because we know the Word of God is true. And she comes and she wants to see some things. Now, these things are going to affect her opinion of Solomon. And notice what they are in this order. Look at verse number 4. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom... Now, we talked about that. Notice the second thing. And the house that he built. She wanted to see the beauty of the house that he had built. Now, Solomon built two different houses. He built the house of the Lord. We know that that's true. David was not allowed to because he was a man of blood. He was a man of battle, but not only a man of battle, but he had, he had shed blood, innocent blood. So the Lord would not allow David to build the house. But he did allow Solomon to build the house of the Lord. And oh, my, the splendor of it. And then there was Solomon's house individually, his personal house. Now, you don't have to believe this, okay? I, if you don't want to believe this, that's fine. You can be wrong. But... <laughs> But I sort of believe that those two houses typify for us the professing church and the possessing church. You see, there was the house that he built for public worship, and anybody could go into that house. I, I mean, there was an outer court, and people go in, and they could give sacrifices, and they, I mean, that was for everybody. But Solomon's house, see, that was only for those that truly knew him. That was for his family. Now, I'm not saying, don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying that, that, uh, that you know, our church is any better than any other church. I mean, I think it is because every crow thinks his crow's the blackest. But, but, but I'm not saying that intrinsic quality, that it's so much. I'm just merely saying this. There is a difference between the professing church and the possessing church. Don't you think for one moment that everybody that walks through the doors of this church or any other one is born again? I promise you, I promise you, I promise you. Part of the problem in our churches today is so many of them are chock full of unregenerate, lost individuals. And they can't bear witness with you because there is no witness in them. There is no witness in them. And she wanted to see his house. She knew if his house was in order that his kingdom was in order. 
Let me tell you something. You know part of the problem? And I, and I made up my mind long ago that I wasn't going to sit around blaming the people that was trying to do something for things not getting done when there's so many folks not trying to do anything. But do understand this, that Christians are watching the way that this house operates. They're watching the way this house operates. They watch what happens in the church. They watch the way that we live. They watch the way that we worship. I think worship's important, don't you? I think it's important. I think the way we worship is important. Worship is a pretty intimate and personal thing between the individual and between the body of Christ and between the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think the fact that we have this attitude of you can worship how you want to and I can worship how I want to, I think that's utter sacrilege. Because you see, we're not here to worship for us. We're here to worship for Him. That's intrinsic to, to the idea of worship. And they wanted to see how the house operated. Let me tell you something. There's some churches, and I've been in a few of them, there's some churches I've been in, I, I, you walk in and, and you don't wonder why nobody ever gets saved there. Boy, somebody turn the air conditioner on. You've been in places like that, I'm sure. You ever walked into a church that was so dead, it was like it was about to hold the funeral over it? No wonder. Let me tell you something. You know what people are looking for? They're looking for something real. Real, 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 real. They didn't want to come here for a funeral. They wanted to come here for a living sermon, for a living Christ, for a living Savior, for a living book, for a living salvation. That's what dead men are looking for. They're looking for life. They won't come to a graveyard to find it. I believe the house of God ought to be in order. I believe if it's scriptural, it'll be in order. I don't believe it ought to be dead, and I don't believe it ought to be formal. I think formalism has killed more churches than modernism has. I, I do. It's okay. We don't have to agree on that. I think formalism has killed more churches than modernism has. People getting in a rut. Rut's nothing but a grave with both ends kicked out. And just waiting for somebody to come along and shovel a foot of dirt in over top of you and throw a rose on your face. The lost individuals are watching the way the house of God operates. When it's out of order, when it's impure, when it's dead, when it's formal... I understand. I know we're supposed to go out and win them, but you know every once in a while, despite our greatest efforts, one comes through our doors. And what are they going to see when they come through our doors? They're watching the church. They're watching how we behave and what we do. He wants to see, or she wants to see the beauty of his house. She wants to see the bounty of his table. Look what it says in verse number 5. And the meat of his table. There's a lot of things I could talk about here. I mean, really, there's a lot of things that could picture. It could picture the fellowship that he had with those that were around him. It, it could, in some ways, even if you wanted to, it could probably picture the death of the Lord Jesus Christ because that's, that's his table, you understand. We talk about the Lord's table. That's the remembrance table. And not this remembrance table, but that heavenly remembrance table. The place where we acknowledge that we have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know sort of what I think it's talking about? She wanted to see all the things that he provided for those that were under his watch care. I Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Did you know that every once in a while, it helps things to praise God? Every once in a while. I know, we're Baptists. That's, if there's a Baptist police, they're looking for us right now. They're going to jail me for saying that. But the truth is, it does folks some good to hear us shout and praise God occasionally. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to talk about all that God's done for you. It's a good thing. You say, well, the Lord don't do that much for me. Well, take inventory sometime. The Lord spares your life every time you get out on the highway. I won't say who I'm talking to. 
Let me tell you something. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from above. From the Father of light, whom is no variables, neither shadow of turning. Everything that you've got, you've got from the hand of God. You ought to let somebody know it. You might find out God will put a few more things in your hands if you just let people know where you got them from. The reason the Lord blesses us is not just so we'll feel warm and fuzzy and good inside, but it's so that a lost and seeking world might look and see that we have a real God that interferes and that intervenes in our lives. We ought to talk about the good things God's done. If He's raised you up out of a sickbed, you ought to talk about it. Listen, if He's took care of your bills, then, well, go ahead. You don't have to get excited about that. You may not have the bills I do. I get excited about that. You ought to tell people about it. You ought to talk about it. You ought to tell people, listen to what my God did for me. And He can do it for you if you'll accept Him. She wanted to see the the bounty of His table. Then notice this. She wanted to see the behavior of His servants. Look at verse number 5 again. She says, "...and the meat of His table and the sitting of His servants and the attendance of His ministers and their apparel and His cupbearers." You see, the way Solomon's servants behaved was a direct reflection on Solomon. Ooh. You've heard it before. I've, I've told it a hundred times. But it was said before that Gandhi made the statement that I might have been a Christian had I never met one. Let me tell you something. It don't mean a lot to us what, what kind of, you know, Gandhi ain't got no influence. We eat too much to appreciate Gandhi, right? <laughs> but the most populated country in the world has been spellbound by his theology and his ideology for many, many years now. And there's no telling the kind of impact that could have been made had he been one to the Lord Jesus Christ. He looked at the way Christians behave and he said, if that's a Christian, I don't want to be one. I don't want to... You wouldn't believe this, but people watch you. You say, nobody watches me. Everybody watches you. We all have people that watch us. Every person in here, you're the best Christian that somebody knows. Every person in here, you're the only Bible that some folks ever hear. Every person in here, you're the only shadow of Jesus Christ that will ever cast itself across their pathway. And they're watching you. And they want to see how you behave. They want to see how you behave. Two things that she mentioned about it. Notice that, that their behavior was in purity. It says this, the sitting of his servants. That's the idea of behavior, right? If you've ever raised kids, you know that's true. Behavior. The most difficult thing. I mean, it's almost impossible. I mean, you could, you could sooner lift up a boulder and heave it over your head. You could sooner pull down a mountain. You could sooner jump across the Grand Canyon than get a little kid to sit still for ten minutes. There's something about it. They'll sit there and they'll not do anything and they'll not say anything and they'll be quiet as can be and then you'll say, now you stay there and boom, up out of their seat. And they don't need anything. They don't want anything. They just want to move because you said don't move. And one of the things that you struggle with most, I remember, I've got some of my teachers in here and you remember, you remember what it was like. Hardest thing in the world, just getting kids to sit still long enough to teach them. Just sit still. But Solomon's servants, they just sat. And they waited for the wave of Solomon's hand. They just waited. They just waited. You'd be amazed what waiting can do. 
You'd be amazed what waiting can do. You know the picture people need to get of Christians is of people that wait on the Lord. That wait on the Lord. Oh, I understand that there's two different understandings of that word, but do you understand that those two understandings are eternally united? Because the idea of waiting like a waiter is eternally connected with the idea of waiting in the sense of sitting still. Because that oriental servant would go and sit or stand beside that table just waiting for instruction, just waiting for counsel and guidance. Sheba says, man, I've never seen anybody sit the way your servants sit. Would to God that people would look at us and say, man, I've never seen anybody live like a Christian lives. I've never seen... I've got a neighbor and he's a Christian. Or I've got a lady I work with and she's a Christian. I've never seen anybody that's as faithful as she is. I've never seen anybody that's as dedicated and committed as she is. I've never seen anybody live a holy life the way that she lives. There must be something to her, God, because it changed her life. The purity of the servants. But then look down at verse 8. She says this. She's talking to him and she says, man, this is more than I could have ever imagined and this is more than was told to me. And she bursts forth and interjects this jubilant notion. She says this, happy are thy men. Happy are these thy servants which stand continually before thee and that hear thy wisdom. You know the thing that struck her was how happy they were. Oh my There's not a person in here, and I'm the worst of all, but what this is going to hit. I wonder if our joy bespeaks the salvation that God has saved us with. She says, I see these other servants, and yeah, they serve, and they wait, and they do, but they're miserable. By the way, that's all religion can do. Religion is man's attempt to reach God, God. Salvation was God reaching down for man. Religion is man's attempt through his own good works to appease a holy God. Salvation and Christianity is a holy God that's already appeased, that has servants that love Him and live for Him because He has met their needs and saved their soul. And she says, man, your servants, they're just so happy. Nothing gets them down. You ascribe to them the dirtiest of work. And they whistle a tune while they do it. Some of us, man, I mean, it ain't no wonder folks don't want to get saved when they see us. We look like we're unhappy about it. We look like we're miserable about it. I'm not saying you have to do backflips. I'm not saying you have to worship in the exact same manner or express yourself in the exact same way. But I'm saying this. Every single man, woman, and child that's ever been born again ought to be happy about it. You ought to have the joy of the Lord. I know we live in a day when a lot of believers and a lot of our brethren, they really look down on the joy of the Lord. You know, we're fanatics. That's what they'd say about us. We're ignorant. We're uncouth. Thank you, Jane, for that word of day calendar. We're uncouth. Let me tell you something. You find some mighty uncouth people in the Word of God. As you go through the Word of God and you find times when the Bible speaks to the nation of Israel that they shouted, that they wept for joy. Let me tell you something. Expressive worship has always been a principle of Bible Christianity from the dawn of time until the day that we're living in now. God's people have always been a happy and joyful people that rejoiced in the salvation of the Lord. That's nothing new. I know that historians 
because they hang out with theologians. <laughs> They'd have us to believe that's a new thing. That that came into being in the Methodist camp meeting movement of the late 1700s and this whole expressive worship thing, that's all new. And uh, You know, it's just a cultural thing. We ought not expect that on the mission field. We ought not expect that in some churches. We not, ought not expect that up north. And there. Let me tell you something. All you Yankees, you wouldn't believe the things that people up north say about you. <laughs> they do. <laughs> And they say, oh, you know, that's just, that's just a southern cultural thing. Well, that's fine, but man, I, see, I knew David was a good old boy. <laughs> because the Bible says that when the ark of God came in and rested inside the city of Jerusalem, that there dressed in a linen cloth, that he danced before the Lord and shouted and laughed and rejoiced for what God had done. There was a crowd then, like there's a crowd now. Michael, his wife, was up in the window. And she looked down and she said, how glorious, how glorious was the king of Israel who undressed himself in the sight of his servants, servants today. The Bible says this about her, that from that day forth she was barren. You say, what happens to Christianity that stifles expressive worship? It dies because the world's looking for something real. So it just dies. And then notice this, this sort of ties in. You know, a good sermon kind of ties all together. Look at the end of verse number 5. It says this, And what? And his ascent by which he went up unto the house of the Lord. We see the blessing of his worship. You know what she said? She said, I like the way you visit the house you built. That's what she said. She said, I like the way, I like the path that you walk. I like the way that you visit the house you built. What a beautiful thing it is to behold. I understand that people need the whole counsel of God. I believe that with all every fiber of my being. I believe the Word of God ought to be t- taught. I believe it ought to be preached. I believe it ought to be preached intelligently so. Amen? Right? I believe that's a good thing. I, I, I'm not one of these that just looks for a big emotional play every time that the doors swing open and shut. But let me say this, that one of the richest blessings that God's people can ever enjoy is the express and manifest presence of the Lord God Almighty. Man, there's just something beautiful about the way He visits His people. We talked about that a moment, I mean, at the beginning of the service. I know God's with us all the time, but you get in a service where the Spirit of God moves and stirs and works in hearts. You can't tell me that's the same as all the time. You can't tell me that's the same as all the time. And I know, I know folks want to poke fun at it, and I know folks want to belittle it, and that's fine. They can go ahead and poke fun at it and belittle it. But evidently, God thinks a lot about it because He shows up for it. So evidently, it means a lot. Evidently, it means a lot for God to show up and bless His people. And she says, boy, that's something the way that you go in your house. Well, what does she say? What's the conclusion? I'll just give you these in hush. We see the witness of the king. What was the final verdict? That she gave. Well, notice verses 6 and 7. She mentions the truth of it. She said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. You know what she found out? She found out that everything she had heard was true. Was true. 
I wonder if we're a good representation of the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what the truth of the gospel is, right? The truth of the gospel, the gospel in a mechanical sense, in a distinct and and pointed sense is given to us in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, how that, uh, you know, Christ died according to the Scriptures, was buried and rose again according to the Scriptures. We understand that, but the truth of the gospel is this. The truth is that God, through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, can redeem and save and change a lost sinner. That's really the driving force of the gospel. The gospel, if it uh, did not have that appeal, would be merely an academic truth and not an effectual principle that can change the life of a human being. But that's the truth of the gospel, that God saved me and God can save you, and it doesn't matter who I'm talking to. That's true. That's true. That's the beauty of the gospel. And I wonder if people would look at our lives and see that truth. Man, God saved him and God changed him. You may say, preacher, I didn't grow up rough. I I saved at a young age. Well, join the club. That was me. But I found this to be true. I've never ran out of things to praise God for. I've never ran out of things that I could look to the Lord and, and, and look to others and say, man, listen to what God did in my life. I have a real God. He's present in my life. He works effectually in my life. I pray and He answers. He speaks through His Word and stirs me and changes me. I just wonder if people would look at our lives and say it was a true report that I heard about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then she says this, look at verse 7. How be it, I believe not the words until I came and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, I like this, behold, the half was not told me. The half wasn't told me. You know what that tells me? That sometimes what a sinner hears about the gospel isn't complete. And they need somebody to show it to them. They need somebody to show it to them. You know what the two halves were, right? She had heard about the wealth, but she had to see it. You know, and I'm not going to get deep into this. I've dealt with it before. But I've given you the illustration of of reaching lost sinners equivalent to that of a bullseye. And you've got an inner ring, and that's the people you know best. And then you've got an outer ring, and that's the people that you go and hand a track to. And you'll probably never see them again unless they get born again and you're able to disciple them. But there in that middle ring, there rests the Queen of Sheba, watching our movings and our behavior and our actions. You say, I don't know any Queens of Sheba. Sure you do. That's your bank teller. That's your hairdresser. That's your co-worker. That's your neighbor. They don't know enough of you to know all the deep, dark, nasty secrets that you hide from everyone, known only to God in heaven. But they know enough about you to know you're a Christian. And they're making a decision about Christ based upon that. And you see, they've heard the gospel. But they've come to you to hear the rest of it. They've heard. They've heard Jesus can save them. They've heard God loves them. They've heard the Bible's the Word of God. But now, you've got to prove it. And they're watching you. She says, you know what? (laughs) When I showed up, when I saw all these servants, and I saw all these cupbearers, man, when I showed up and I saw the, the beauty of your house and the blessing of your worship, you know what I found out? I found out it was true. Every bit of it. Notice not only the truth of it, but notice the testimony of it. What did it tell her? Verse number 9. Blessed, she says, be the Lord thy God. 
which delighted in thee to sit thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. Now, let me tell you something. You could just park there and preach for about three hours an entire sermon. Of all the things that she says, look at it again. She notices that Jehovah is his God. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighted in thee. He's a God that takes interest in humanity to set thee on the throne of Israel. She understands that he's where he's at because God has intervened. She says, because the Lord loved Israel forever. She learned something about the love of God in his life. Therefore made he the king. She understands that there's an authority, and he's that authority to do judgment and justice. She understands that there's judgment coming. All of these things are expressed to her when she sees the king high and holy and lifted up. And if we'll just lift him up. Let me tell you something. Jesus can do a lot more than we can do. (laughs) We... I'm not opposed to the Romans' road. I mean, hey, it's Bible. I believe in the Romans. That's wonderful. I've used the Romans' road many times to witness to someone. I've used variants of this, that, and the other. I've used this fellow's method and that fellow's method and no fellow's method and no method at all and my fellow's method. But can I tell you this? That if we can just get them face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ, He'll do more than we ever could. Whatever means, whatever scriptural means is necessary to get them face to face with Jesus Christ. Hey, that's fine. You you take your pick, take your choice, let the Spirit of God lead you. But the truth is get them face to face with Jesus Christ. You'd be amazed all the theology that the thief in the cross uttered when he said this, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Hey, he wasn't no master theologian. He was a thief. But when he saw Jesus on the cross, that told him everything that he needed to know. We see the testimony of it. And then finally, notice, she gets a taste of it. Verse 13, King Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all her desire. (laughs) Boy, he's done that for me. I was going to move on and just start preaching, but let me just testify for a moment. He's done that for me. He's given me all my... You say, preacher, aren't there other things that you want? Sure. And because of my flesh, there'll always be every other things that I want. But you know what I've found? The things that I truly desire. He's given me everything. He's given me everything. Man, let me tell you something. If you just sit down and take a record of the things you pray and God gives you, you'd find out that you're constantly having to come up with new wants just to keep up with His bounty and His graciousness. He looked at the queen of Sheba and said, What do you want? Anything that you want, it's yours. He gives, him, gives her a bounty out of two different things. Whatsoever she asked, <laughs> beside that which Solomon gave her of his royal bounty. <laughs> there was two sets of things that he gave her. First, he gave her an official gift. A gift, let me, let me say this, that he was bound by his office to give her. That was the royal bounty. He was bound by his office, by his throne, by his administration to give her that royal bounty. You know, God did that for you and me. I I believe God's happy about saving sinners. I believe He is. But do you know, even if God wasn't happy about it, He'd still have to do it because He's promised He's going to do it. 
by virtue of who and what He is, by virtue of the promises that He's made. He said that any that come unto Me I will in no wise cast out. He said, whosoever, whosoever, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And by the immutable Word of God and the unchangeable laws of His character and person and nature, when a sinner comes unto Him and says, Lord God, I'm a sinner, please forgive me and save me. God says, I must save you. That's his royal bounty. But then you know what he said? He said, I know I'm going to give you that. But anything that you ask me for, I'll give you that too. <laughs> I, I've mentioned it a couple times here lately. But I, I'm reminded of what Paul says to Philemon concerning Onesimus. You know, Philemon's a picture of God the Father. Paul's a picture of Jesus Christ. Onesimus is a picture of a lost sinner. And you know what Paul says? He looks at Philemon, so it's kind of like Jesus looking at God the Father and says this, I know that you'll do more than I say unto you. I know that you'll do more. And listen to me, he's always done more. And he's still doing more. He don't do anything at the bare minimum. He does everything in abundance and wealth and richness. And you know what she found out? She found out if she'd just come to him, <laughs> he'd meet her every need and he'd fill her every desire. Oh, that sinners might come to know Jesus Christ and that they might taste of the goodness of God the way you and I have. You say, how does that happen, preacher? Well, it happens through two things. One is through the giving of the Word of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And two, it happens through the testimony and the life and the witness of those that know the Lord. I wonder this tonight. I wonder if your life rings the truth of the gospel in the heart and lives of lost sinners and shows them that there's a God in heaven and that God's real and He loves them. He'll do for them what He's done for you.